All right, would you open up your Bibles to, I'm going to try to cover two chapters today, Genesis 41, Genesis 41, the title for our lesson is Joseph's Years of Forgetting and Fruitfulness. We've left behind the years, or we're going to today, the years of toil and affliction, and we're entering into the phase of his life that was years of forgetting and fruitfulness. So let's ask the Lord's blessing on our time and then get right into it. Father, thank you for this day, an important day in our country, and we pray that you would have your will and way as people go to the polls to vote, and that's a wonderful privilege that we have in this country, so I pray that we will do that. That's our responsibility as citizens of this great country. And Lord, I just ask that you would still our hearts and minds, as Terry always prays, so that we could focus on what your spirit has to say to us through your word. Help me to be able to focus and for me to be able to um, eliminate those things I don't need to say, but uh, focus on what would especially glorify your son, because it's not so much Joseph we want to exalt. He was a great example, but it's you. It's always you. And so we want to lift up Jesus Christ today. May he receive all the praise and glory. And um, may we have spiritual heartburn as we learn new things about how Joseph did indeed picture him. You are great. You are wonderful. And we commit this next hour to you. For we pray in that name above every name, the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, Joseph spent two additional years in prison, didn't he? Because a man forgot about him. The butler forgot about him um, after he had accurately interpreted his dream and the baker's dream. And he had asked the butler to please remember him when he was restored to his position as cupbearer to the to the king, the pharaoh. But he forgot to do that. And, you know, waiting those two long years had to be one of the darkest times in Joseph's life. And yet we do not hear a single word of complaint complaint from him. In fact, as we're going to see today, when he finally does emerge from prison, his first words spoken exalt God to Egypt's powerful king. So Joseph really gives us very many valuable lessons on how to rightly deal with temptation. And I'm not, when we talk about temptation when it comes to Joseph, usually our minds jump to the temptation that he faced with Mrs. Potiphar. You know, how to deal with fleshly lusts to flee them. But in, he also dealt very well with temptation. He was successful over temptation in the area of personal injustice. You know, when we are accused of something or, you know, unjustly, uh, punished for something that we didn't do because he really did not attempt to rape Mrs. Potiphar, did he? And yet he was punished anyway for a long time. We don't know exactly how long he was in prison, but it was years. And that has the potential to lead one to bitterness. Yes? Bitter. You get bitter about, well, this isn't fair. What am I doing here? I did nothing wrong. I was totally righteous. So people tend to fall to the temptation to be bitter or to have their, you know, wavering faith. He must have thought, well, I don't know. God has forsaken me, forgotten me. Um, I'm not so sure I really do believe in God. 
after all that's happened to me. What is another temptation? This is a biggie. Vengeance. You know, I'm, I, a lot of people would spend those years in prison thinking about, how oh, when I get out, I'm really going to get my brothers. I'm going to go back to Canaan, and I'm going to do this, and I'm going to do that. So there's a temptation for vengeance, and then, or just total despair. You know, just kind of have a big pity party and just sort of give up. Go into a, um, a stupor. <laughs> but uh, Joseph didn't succumb to any of those hum- common human emotions. And, and how, what prevented him from doing that? What was, what was his best preventative measure? What was, he, what was the joy set before him? The, God's revelation to him, right? He didn't have God's word yet because Moses wasn't born for another 400 years, but he had the dream. God sent dreams that he clung to. He knew that God gave them and that somehow they would be filled. How they would be fulfilled, he had no idea, but he believed that they would be fulfilled. One day, the sheaves would bow before him. And in the meantime, he understood that there was divine purpose in everything he encountered, all that he went through. Do you realize that? Everything we go through in life is God's part of God's plan for us. He knows the plan he has for us, and he's orchestrated all of it ahead of time. So as I said, just like Jesus on the cross had the joy set before him, suffering the shame and all that he went through on the cross, he knew that what he was doing there would produce much fruit. And that fruit would be you and I and many other millions of people who would spend eternity with him. And that he would return to his father in heaven. So he kept his focus on that joy before him. And that's exactly what Joseph did. And that helped him to maintain a positive attitude throughout everything. All those years of toil and affliction. And to keep his faith strong. And to have contentment. You know, Paul said, I can be content in whatever state I'm in. North Carolina, California, Alaska. (laughs) But he had a contented spirit through all of his difficult, very difficult and unfair. Yes, life is not fair down here on this planet. But he had contentment in all of his slave and prisoner years. Something else besides God's revelation. And that's what I keep my focus on, don't you? When we're going through this life. You know, it hasn't been fulfilled yet, but we believe the word of God. We believe what's going to happen in the end, and we keep the focus on that. Heaven awaits us. Yay. We're going to see Jesus face to face one day. Well, the other thing that helped Joseph cope with his captivity and be successful over all the temptations to, you know, these emotions he could have had was his servant's heart. Like Jesus, he had a servant's heart. He didn't squander his time and energy on self-pity. Instead, he ministered to others. The greatest in the kingdom of God is who? The one, the servant, the one who ministers to others. And I've said this many, many times over the years, but one of the best ways to get our minds off of our own problems is to what? Help others, to focus on helping someone else. A lot of times when you do that, you find out, oh, wow, my problems aren't nearly as bad as I thought because I wouldn't want hers. I'd rather have mine. (laughs) 
And that's what he did. He was commissioned to serve the butler and the baker. And one day, when one morning, when he went in to serve them, he noticed their faces were extra sad. And he asked about it. Why are you so sad? Why are you so troubled? That was in chapter 40, verse 7. Now, what if he hadn't asked them why they were so What if he was so full of his own problems that he said, well, I don't care about them. Let them be sad. <laughs> what if he hadn't asked them? Well, then they wouldn't have shared the dreams that they had had, and he wouldn't have interpreted the dreams, and he wouldn't eventually have been introduced to the Pharaoh by the butler. Yes, he procrastinated for a while, but eventually he, that resulted in his deliverance from prison, didn't it? His concern and his servant heart eventually released him from prison. So his dungeon ministry opened the door to a far greater ministry in the palace. And Jesus, you know, he came into our prison down here, didn't he? We're living in Egypt. You know, Egypt is a picture of the world. He entered into our prison so that he could empathize with the feelings of our infirmities. He had, he's the compassionate one. Again, Joseph picturing him. Well, so after those two long additional years in prison, the Lord, it was time. Everything is in the Lord's hand, uh, timing, isn't it? It's in his hands. You know, I got to thinking that if the butler had remembered Joseph earlier to the Pharaoh, he might have said, well, I met a guy down in prison who could interpret dreams. Pharaoh might have said, so what? Okay, I've got many wise men and magicians. I don't need another one. But when he had dreams of his own, then he needed Joseph when no one else could interpret them. So it was all God's timing. The butler had remembered he might have still stayed in there anyway. It was, but it was time, and so the Lord intervened, and he gave another pair of prophetic dreams. Now, in the narrative about Joseph, we've had three pairs of dreams. Two were given to Joseph, right, the sheaves and the stars bowing before him, and then two were to the butler and the baker, and now we have two more, another pair of dreams that were given to the king himself, Pharaoh of Egypt. And the Egyptians, like many ancient people, put a lot of stock in dreams. They believed that dreams were messages from the gods, especially if the dreams went to a king. That there was a message from the gods. Now, they weren't too far off because the dreams sent to Pharaoh this time were not from the gods. They were from the god, right? So Pharaoh had two dreams in one night, and they were dramatic enough to greatly disturb him. They both involve the number seven. If you go through chapter 41, you'll find the number seven 27 times. Seven is an important number to God, isn't it? It's all over the first book of the Bible, Genesis, and it's all over the last book of the Bible, Revelation. And it's in a lot of the other books as well. So both involve the number seven, and both had very bad endings. And the king, the pharaoh, woke up after each one. He woke up after he had the first one, and he was disturbed in his spirit because even though he couldn't interpret it, he knew it wasn't good. And same thing happened with the second dream. When he woke up, he knew it wasn't good. So they had bad endings. He could remember, not like King Nebuchadnezzar. Remember King Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, and he, he wanted all of his wives. He was going to cut them up in pieces if they couldn't tell him the dream and then interpret it. Really, king? We've got to tell you what the dream was? I think he might have been testing them, but who alone could do that? Daniel. 
exactly. Anyway, but this king could remember the dreams. He just didn't know what they meant. The meaning was unclear. Well, the first dream, he dreamt about seven, seven skinny cows. I'm going to call them skinny, even though here I think they're called uh, lean-fleshed kine. <laughs> That's King James for skinny cows. Okay, so he dreamt about six skinny, sickly-looking, emaciated cows that came out up out of the Nile River after seven fat, healthy cows had come up out of the same river. And then what did the skinny cows do? (laughs) I know. They ate the fat cows. They ate the seven fat cows. (laughs) You never know what you're going to talk about in Bible study, right? (laughs) Did you ever think? Skinny cows eating fat cows? Well, even after they ate the fat cows, what did they look like? They still look skinny. They still look emaciated. And, and that's exactly sort of the same thing that he dreamt about in his, his second dream had to do with corn. So this is the cow and corn dreams. In the second dream, there were seven ears of good corn, you know, healthy-looking corn on the cob, and they were followed by the sprouting of seven skinny, thin ears of corn. Now, the thin ears of corn were the result of an east wind that blew in and blasted the entire crop. And when all that crop was destroyed, you know, that would lead to a famine. And they did have eastern winds that would occasionally sweep over the Nile and cause a famine. So these were things very familiar to Pharaoh. He, you know, was used to seeing cows, and he was used to seeing the Nile, of course. You know, God gives us, gives people culturally appropriate dreams with things that they can identify with. What would have happened if he sent Pharaoh a dream about cell phones and computers or something like that? You know, he wouldn't have a clue what it's about, but it's things he was familiar with. Well, I am sure that, well, they went on to say that the seven, did I say this? The seven thin ears of corn devoured the seven healthy ears of corn, ate it up, ate them up just like the cows, the skinny cows ate the fat cows. But we don't know if the skinny ears of corn still look skinny because that's when Pharaoh woke up. But I'm sure they did. Even after eating the fat corn, they still look skinny. (laughs) But he woke up from his dream. Well, in the morning, he was still very disturbed in his spirit about these two dreams. So he summoned all of his magicians and all of his wise men who, you know, studied. They had books they wrote about dream interpretation. Now, I don't think this is real difficult. You know, both these dreams really give the same message, don't they? I don't think it's too difficult. Of course, I've got the advantage of knowing what it means, but... None of the wise men or magicians were able to interpret the dream. They did not have a clue, which really shouldn't (laughs) surprise us because they were pagans. And who sent these dreams? God sent these dreams, and the things of God are spiritually discerned. Plus, God perhaps blinded their understanding because he was paving the way for, guess who? Joseph. So Pharaoh's frustration about his dreams prodded The butler was there, you know, at his right hand, handing him his wine whenever he needs a cup of wine. (laughs) All of a sudden, he has a V8 moment. (gasps) And he remembers (laughs) that nice young Hebrew down in the prison. 
who had interpreted their dreams accurately, his and the, and the baker's. And so he tells Pharaoh the details about what had happened in the prison two years earlier. And the timing is perfect. Now Pharaoh needs Joseph desperately. And so he summoned hastily, it says. But it's interesting to look at verse 14 of chapter 41. I wish I could read the passage to you, but you're just going to have to try to follow along with me. He does something interesting before he goes into Pharaoh's presence. You know what Joseph does first? He shaves. <laughs> he shaves off his beard and he takes off his orange suit. <laughs> he changes his clothes. Now, remember, isn't one of, wasn't one of your homework questions about doing a little? I would love to hear what some of you said about a little study in Joseph's clothes. You know, he had the coat of many colors, and then he had the robe that uh, Mrs. Potiphar held on to. Well, here's another, here's another thing about his clothing. He changed his clothes. I don't know what he put on, but he took off his prison clothes, and he put on something new. Why did he do this? Well, when in Rome, do as the Romans. When in Egypt, do as the Egyptians. The Hebrews regarded a full beard as a sign of dignity, but the Egyptians did not. They, did, they, they looked down. They were offensive to Egyptians. They were clean-shaven. And you, you, can you picture an Egyptian pharaoh? What did they have instead? Like sort of just a, a rectangle thing down here? A little goatee. Goatee, yeah. A little goatee. And otherwise they were clean-shaven. Plus, he took off his prison clothes. You know, he didn't want to be stinky. I don't <laughs> he did, just wanted to not offend the Egyptian pharaoh. And you could probably preach on that. <laughs> well, anyway, once Joseph was then taken into Pharaoh's presence, he learned about the dream dilemma. The king had remembered the dream. And it's interesting that the king, that the pharaoh actually refers to his dreams, plural, as dream singular, because he intuitively knew that both of the dreams spoke about the same truth. So he tells him, I've had the, this dream, but I have no one to interpret it now. Oh, and then he said, but I've heard that you have the ability to interpret dreams. This was Joseph's big moment. Here's another temptation he overcame. What could he have done at this point? He could have puffed up his chest and he could have said, you are absolutely right. You need me so badly. I have the gift of dream interpretation. He could have exalted himself, couldn't he? Mm -hmm. But would Joseph do that? No, not our Joseph. He always made sure to give the glory to God. What did Jesus do? He always gave the glory to his father. He could have taken the glory for himself here, but he didn't. Instead, he doesn't hesitate. Now, these are the first words we hear from him after all his years of toil and affliction as a slave and even as a prisoner. And these are the first words we hear. He says, and this is in verse 16, it is not in me. I am not the source of this ability to interpret dreams. It's not in me. God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Isn't that wonderful? Wow, amazing, amazing man, really. And then he told the king, he goes on to tell the king, um, after he hears the dream, that God had revealed his future plans to the king. 
And he was confident. When he says, God shall give you an answer of peace, he hasn't heard the dream yet. But he has total confidence in God that God will allow him to know what the meaning is. He does. He has confidence that he would know the meaning. So his confidence isn't in himself. It's in God. So that is just amazing. After emerging from a long, undeserved punishment, we find he's not bitter. He's not angry. We never read of him expressing anger at all against his brothers, against Mrs. Potiphar, against his former boss, Mr. Potiphar. We never hear him expressing anger uh, toward the butler. You know, the butler's right there, the pharaoh's right hand. He could have said, you never remembered me. You waited two years. I mean, we don't hear that from Joseph. He only has praise on his lips for his God, which he unflinchingly proclaimed to the mighty king himself. Look with me at what he said in verse 16. Of course, he said, God shall give Pharaoh an answer of peace. Then move down to, this is him speaking later. In verse 25, it says, And Joseph said unto Pharaoh, The dream of Pharaoh is one. In other words, he he agrees with the king. Both of these dreams are really one message. And then what does he say? God hath showed Pharaoh what he is about to do. My God can tell the future. And then look at verse 28. He's still speaking to Pharaoh, and he says, What God is about to do, he hath showed unto Pharaoh. And verse 32, he mentions God twice. He says, and for that, the dream was doubled unto Pharaoh twice. He gave you the same message twice. That means he's real, he really is, you know, the witness has to be two. That's why he had two dreams about the sheaves and the stars to confirm, yes, this is God's message. He says, uh, because it was doubled unto Pharaoh twice, it is because the thing is established by God And God will shortly bring it to pass. He really is bold about speaking of his God. What he is saying there is God not only decreed the future that he had planned, but then he brings it to pass. He determines the future and then he works all things together for good, including man's evil. And even things that we think are random and coincidence, they're not. It's God working everything, orchestrating everything so that what he's decreed about the future will actually come to pass. That was one of your homework questions. I just answered it for you. (laughs) So Pharaoh then shares his dreams with Joseph. Wasting no time, Joseph immediately begins the interpretation after he does tell him that both dreams say the same thing. The seven fat cows and the seven plump heads of grain indicated seven years of abundance coming soon to Egypt. Plenty, plenteous harvests. But the seven skinny cows and the seven scorched withered heads of corn predicted a seven year famine that would come right on the heels of the seven years of plenty. It seems easy enough to interpret, doesn't it, when we, when we see his interpretation. So the message that God was delivering to Pharaoh through the dreams was that Egypt was going to have seven years of fantastic harvest followed by a famine so severe that Joseph calls it very grievous. Look at verse 31. 
this was going to be, I mean, that's a long famine, seven long years. It was going to be very, very grievous. Well, what is also surprising is that then Joseph continues to talk. All right, he's already interpreted the dreams, but he continues talking. Without being asked by Pharaoh, that could be dangerous. But he proceeds to give advice (laughs) to the Pharaoh. He fearlessly gave advice even though he hadn't been asked. He tells the king to, to look for a discreet and wise man and set him up over all of Egypt. That's in verse 33. And then he says officers should be appointed under this man to collect a double portion of Egypt's crops during those seven years of abundance. Now, normally they would collect 10% of what a farmer grew. That would be like the tax. The government would come in and take 10%. He's saying do double, so that would be 20%, a fifth of what everybody grew. Take that and then gather it together in granaries, put the granaries in the major cities like Cairo and Memphis and other Egyptian cities instead of keeping them out in the country where they could be robbed from. You know, put them in the cities where we can protect them. We'll leave, keep them there for, you know, for later distribution during the seven years of famine. Now, that's a good plan, isn't it? Very good. I mean, and he, he just came up with that. This guy was fast. He was really quick on his uh, feet, his mind. So it shows us that he had really, during his years of toil and affliction, he had really developed his skills of administration and all his other gifts. He was a prophet like Jesus because he spoke forth for God, but he was also a great administrator, and he's a wonderful counselor here, just like Jesus. So remember he said that God would give Pharaoh an answer of peace? Well, Pharaoh's answer of peace really didn't come in the interpretation of the dreams because they had sort of, I mean, seven years of a long, very grievous famine. That doesn't sound like giving the king peace. Where did his peace come from? Really, it came not so much from the interpretation as for this advice, this wise advice. When he hears Joseph's plan of action it says in verse 37 and the thing was good in the eyes of pharaoh and in the eyes of all his servants they all agreed you know all those wise men and magicians that is really smart idea so it was good and the king realized that joseph himself was this man this discreet wise man who could fulfill his own plan He was very impressed with Joseph, very. And although the king would process everything through his polytheistic grid, because he believed in, the Egyptians believed in many gods and goddesses, yet he acknowledged that there was a divine spirit in Joseph, verse 38. And he definitely wanted Joseph and his God on his team. Not only did Pharaoh want Joseph to supervise this extra supply project in order to decrease the impact of the famine years. But then he goes on to tell him that he also wants him to rule over his household. And he goes further, 
and all the citizens of Egypt. Isn't that amazing? Look at verse 40. This is Pharaoh speaking. And he says to Joseph, Thou shalt be over my house, and according unto thy word shall all my people be ruled. Only in the throne will I be greater than thou. I think it's hard to imagine a more uh, uh, meteoric rise, you know, like a meteor, from a prison to a palace than what we see in Joseph. I mean, he, he just experienced that rise in just less than one day. Less than one hour, probably, when he heard the dream, interpreted, gave the advice, and all of a sudden, he's he's sitting at the right hand of God the Father. Amazing. I mean, not God the Father. <laughs> Pharaoh the king. You know who I was thinking of. <laughs> and he was entrusted with all things. Jesus, too, it says in John 3, 35, the Father hath given all things into his hand. Didn't the Lord Jesus also have a meteoric rise? I mean, he was one day in obscurity, a carpenter, a common carpenter in Nazareth of Galilee, despicable Nazareth, and nobody much knew about him. And then in just one day, everybody had heard about Jesus. You know what that one event that made the change so quickly was? When he went to Jerusalem, first time in his public ministry, and he went straight to the temple, and what did he do? He cleansed it single-handedly. Excuse me, single-handedly. And all of a sudden, oh, he really got the Pharisees and Caiaphas and Annas all upset. But everybody then started to know about Jesus of Nazareth. Well, tokens of Joseph's new position were then presented to him. The Pharaoh took off his signet ring and he put it on Joseph's hand. That ring gave Joseph the authority to speak and act in the king's name. That was a powerful ring. And then another change of clothes. He is dressed up in fine linen and a gold chain is placed around his neck. Verse 42. Do you know that when we read about the exalted resurrected Lord Jesus in the book of Revelation, how is he dressed? In a long robe, fine fine linen with a, 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 girdle, a golden girdle around his breast. Then, then Pharaoh calls for a horse-drawn chariot to carry Joseph throughout the whole royal city behind his chariot. So Joseph's chariot is right behind Pharaoh's chariot. And as that chariot rides up and down the streets of the city, a proclamation goes forth that he is the new ruler over all the land of Egypt. By Pharaoh's decree. And the command is given. Look at verse 43. The command is given for what? For everyone to bow the knee. You know, one day at the name of Jesus, everyone will bow the knee, right? And then he's given a new name. He's given an Egyptian name, Zaphnath Pania. That's a mouthful. Joseph is a lot easier to say. <laughs> Zaphnath Paneah. 
And do you know what it means in ancient Egyptian? Savior of the world. Now, don't tell me he's not a picture type of Jesus. Savior of the world. Ooh. Do you now know how old Joseph was at this time? Look at verse 46. Nope. 30. He's 30 years old when he begins his ministry for Pharaoh and goes throughout all the land of Egypt. Begins his ministry, his life-saving ministry. Bread ministries, bread of life. How old was Jesus when he began his public ministry? And he went throughout the whole land of, of Israel. He was 30 years old. Now, Joseph was Israel's first deliverer, physical deliverer, because he delivered his family out of Canaan, where they would have starved to death and brought them to Egypt. And he was given a Gentile bride. Her name was Asenath, verse 45. She was Egyptian. So he received a Gentile bride given to him by Pharaoh. Moses was Israel's second physical deliverer because he, years later, delivered her out of Egypt and back to the promised land. He also had a Gentile bride, a Midianite woman named Zipporah. The Gentile wives of God's deliverers prophetically picture who? Us, the church, the bride of Christ, primarily Gentile. Now, Christ, of course, is the only spiritual deliverer of Israel and the whole world. Joseph's wife, Asenath, proceeded during the years of fruitfulness. She, she bore him two sons. There was Manasseh and Ephraim, right? Okay, now they were, like the church, they were part Jewish from Joseph, and they were part Gentile from their mother, Asenath. Asenath, right? Part Jewish, part just like the church, made up of Jews and Gentiles. Moses also had two sons, and they too were therefore, because his wife was Gentile, she was a Midianite, his sons were also part Jewish and part Gentile. Isn't that interesting? I think that's interesting. Well, in Joseph's first years as vizier, and his position, if you read about the Ottoman Empire and a um, the Muslims, they would have a king called a sultan, and he would ha have a vizier. It was like a prime minister or a governor, and he would give that man his signet ring, and he, he ruled for the sultan. He was just about as powerful as the sultan, and it was called vizier, V-I-Z-I-E-R. So his first years in that position, he traveled himself. He was a hands-on kind of a guy. He was a person, people, and he wanted to not just give the, the, the work to his underseers, the officers assigned under him, but he wanted to go out and meet the people. So he traveled throughout the whole land of Egypt in order to assess the resources. He was among the people, and he won the love and the, and the respect of the people. And so as Pharaoh's dreams had predicted, Egypt enjoyed seven years of great abundance as the land produced in such quantity that we're told it was like as the sands of the sea. I don't know what verse that is, but it's in there somewhere. Let's see. Verse 49, as the sands of the sea, there was so much grain. And he personally oversaw the collection of all the surpluses, which were, as his plan had said, they were stored in granaries in the cities of Egypt. 
Well, when the famine then hit, how long were the good years? Seven, okay. Then the famine came along, and when it had a good grip on the people, which took two years because the people had enough in their own private storehouses to eat food for two years. But by the third year, and now if anybody can do the math really fast, how old would Joseph be by the second end of the second year of the famine years? 39 years old, all right? And the famine has gotten a hold on the people, and they're starting to really get hungry. And so it says in verse 55, I think it is, 40, I'm still in chapter 41. Yeah, they start to cry out to Pharaoh, telling them they're hungry. And here's what he tells them to do. Look at verse 55. Go unto Joseph. What he saith to you, do. That's good advice if you think of it in terms of Jesus, right? The king is giving good advice there. Go to Joseph, the source of the bread of life. And what he says to do, do it. Now, interestingly, this same command was given years later. Anyone want to guess who gave this same command? Yes, very good. Good, you get a star. Uh, At the wedding in Cana, his mother told the servants when they ran out of wine, she said to the servants about her boy, (laughs) Jesus, she said, and this is John 2, 5, I think, whatsoever he saith unto you, do it. That is the best motherly advice you could ever hear or give. What Jesus says to do, do it. Now, those two do whatever he says commands are interesting because the first one involving Joseph was concerning bread. The second one given by Mary concerned Jesus, and it had to do with wine, bread and wine, Hmm. the two elements of the new covenant. The new covenant centers on Jesus Christ, whose body was broken, bread, and blood was shed, wine, for you and I. And only, he didn't say go to this guy and go to that guy and go to that guy. They all have, they can all give you bread. They can all give you grain. He said go to one source. Go to Joseph. Only Joseph offered the bread of life. And he offered it to anyone who came to him. But they had to come to him, didn't they? He wasn't going to take it to them. They had to come to him. Whether Jew or Gentile, the Egyptians came. When his own family, the Jews came, he gave it to them too. He pictured Jesus, who is the bread of life. He is. He said, I am the bread of life. He also said, I am the true manna from heaven. And he illustrated that. He didn't just say things. He always proved them by miracles. He proved he was the bread of life by two miraculous feedings of great crowds. One to Gentiles, 4,000, the feeding of the 4,000, which was just the men. You know, if you include the women and children, it was a lot more. About 12,000 people he fed with meager amount. It was a miracle. It was a creative miracle. And then he fed another massive crowd of Jews. Fed Gentiles and the Jews. He is the bread of life. Well, thanks to Joseph, Egypt was prepared for the famine. 
which hit with great, great severity. But the family of Israel didn't have Joseph with them, did she? Hmm. They had they had gotten rid of Joseph purposely. And so things got very desperate for Israel. And then Jacob eventually heard about the provision that was available in Egypt. Now I'm moving into chapter 42. And he prodded his sons to action. In effect, he says to them in, in the verses, effectively, he says, don't just stand there looking at each other while we die. Get down to Egypt. There's corn in Egypt. Go there. So the 10 older sons of Jacob go down to buy corn in Egypt. Verse 3. Only Benjamin, Joseph's only full brother, the only other son of his beloved wife, Rachel, who's dead now, only he stayed behind in Canaan with his father. Why? Because his father would not let him go, even though Benjamin is not a little kid anymore. He's about in his early 30s. You know how old Joseph's brothers are? If he's 39, they're all in their 40s, aren't they? Okay, so Benjamin's not a kid. He's 30, but his daddy will not let him go with his older brothers. And you know what is interesting? To read his reason why he won't let him go with his older brothers. Look at verse (laughs) 4. No, not. He says, lest peradventure mischief befall him. Hmm. Did Jacob suspect some mischief had gone on? with Joseph and his brothers. He's had, this is now 22 years after, you know, Joseph was 17, now he's 39. You do the math, this is 22 years later. And Jacob has had a lot of time to think about things. He's probably caught his boys whispering or seen funny looks on their faces when Joseph's name comes up. And, you know, he keeps looking at that coat of many colors that they brought back to him. And it's splattered in, in blood. He doesn't know it's goat's blood. It's splattered in dried blood, but it's not torn in shreds. You know, we never read about it being torn in shreds. And if, as they had led him to believe, Joseph had been eaten by a sharp-toothed beast of some kind, don't you think there'd be some rips and tears on the coat? So he has been thinking this over, and he does highly suspect mischief befell Joseph what is interesting to also notice oh and I was going to say this too Israel you know Jacob's other name is Israel so Jacob Israel Israel one day will know of the mischief that did indeed take place with Jesus and has caused her so many years of needless sorrow because there was mischief that went on when the religious rulers lied to the people about Jesus's body having been stolen. So Jacob is not about to entrust his one remaining favorite son. He still has this problem with favorites. And Benjamin is now his favorite. And even though, however, his partiality is still evident, we do notice something different about the other boys, men. They don't express any hatred or bitterness toward Benjamin, daddy's favorite. We don't hear them say anything about that. So perhaps this is a hint of maturity on their part, you think? A little bit of maturity? 
They're not jealous anymore of Benjamin like they were of Joseph. Besides, Benjamin didn't get dreams. <laughs> but they, they, uh, they perhaps are having some regret about what they had done to Joseph. Well, once in Egypt, so they go down to Egypt. And once in Egypt, can you imagine these shepherd men, you know, full beards and their long robes and everything. And they're just kind of like country bumpkins compared to Egypt. <laughs> and they've never been to cities like Memphis and Cairo. And I don't know what city this took place in, but they're magnificent. Back in that day, woo, you know, just take your breath away. And they walk in and they see the pyramids and the Sphinx and everything. And they're just in awe. And then they have to, they have to go before this man who could provide bread. And they get in the line, you know, the bread line, and they see him up there, and he's got a black wig on, and probably this crown, and his little goatee, and his eyes outlined in black like even the men did that, and he's got this coat of many colors, magnificent, you know, <laughs> and he's standing up there, and everybody that approaches him, they bow down, and they're just in awe. And then finally, it's their turn. They get to the front of the line. And what do they do? Verse 6, it says, they bow low, faces to the earth. <laughs> this was, of course, I mean, you had to do that. This was an expected expression of respect for the powerful vizier of Egypt, second only to Pharaoh. And so they do that. <laughs> and they haven't got a clue that the one before they are bowing is the one they had so cold-heartedly sold as a slave 22 years earlier. Joseph looks a lot different than when he was 17. And they expect, we find out later on, they really think Joseph is dead, that he wouldn't have survived. And so they think he's dead. This man is very much alive. Last time they saw Joseph, he was... He was being sold as a slave with iron fetters around his ankles, you know, slave. This guy is not a slave. No way. He, he has the clean shaven look and the clothing and the speech of an Egyptian. You know, so the farthest thing from their minds is that this could possibly be Joseph. They wouldn't think that in a million years. <laughs> but on the other hand, when he sees them, yes, they're a little bit older, but he instantly recognizes them. There's Reuben, there's Zebulun, there's Simeon, there's Levi. You know, he knows them all. And he sees them, and it says he knows them. Verse 7. Jesus knows his own, doesn't he? He's always had his eye on Israel. He knows them. And can you just imagine what went through Joseph's mind and heart in just a flash? I think there they are. His brothers before them bowed low. And I think every emotion conceivable passed through him all at once, swept over him. After all, the last time he had seen these guys, he was the one crying out in great anguish of his soul, pleading for their mercy. And he's being led away in iron fetters by the Ishmaelites to be a slave in Egypt. So he had to have all kinds of emotions and ideas, things passing through his mind. And as he's dealing with all of that and trying to process it, it dawns on him that his long ago dream was being fulfilled before his very eyes. 
Oh, Lord, I knew it was you were going to keep your word. I knew you were going to fulfill your revelation. And here it is, right? It must have been so surreal for him. Don't you imagine? Just like the sheaves in the dreams, you know, his, his brothers are bowed before him. And we know he thought of this. We know this came to his mind because the scripture tells us in verse 9, it says, Joseph remembered the dreams which he dreamed of them. There's one slight difference. In the second dream, you know, about the moon and the stars, there were 11 stars that bowed before him. 11. How many are bowed before him right now? Only 10. Somebody's missing. Who's missing? Benjamin is missing. And Joseph is going to work on that. Now, I told you that Joseph is a good example to us about overcoming temptation. Think about this. (laughs) Now, my carnal nature really comes out when I think about this. (laughs) What a temptation it would have been for Joseph at that moment to keep those guys <laughs> bowed with their faces to the ground as he very casually then begins to speak in Hebrew and says, hmm, you know, once upon a time when I was just a teenager, I had a dream about sheaves bowing down before me. Can you imagine <laughs> the fear that would go? Through? Oh, my. Or, and then after saying that, what could he have done? Take him to the slave market. Throw him in the dungeon. Now, the carnal nature of me, you know, that would be very tempting. But Joseph didn't do that. He didn't succumb to that temptation. He resisted it just as well as he had resisted the temptation from Mrs. Potiphar. He resisted the temptation for revenge. And instead, I mean, I told you this guy's fast on his feet. In an in a instant, in a God-led decision, he determined, no, it is better for me to withhold my identity at, at this time. For, you know, from my brothers. It says he made himself strange unto them. Verse 7. You know, Jesus came into this earth. He could have come like he looked up on the Mount of Transfiguration, you know, all glowing like God. He could have come down to earth like that, right? But instead, he made himself strange. He came as a baby in a manger. He hid himself behind human flesh. He wanted us to focus on, he wanted man to focus on his words, not his appearance. So he doesn't speak to them in Hebrew. He speaks in Egyptian, and we learn in verse 23, he uses an interpreter. And in order to keep his emotions in check, because this guy gets emotional quite a bit later on. He's he's probably ready to burst out in tears. So to fight that off, he speaks roughly to them in Egyptian, and he says, whence come ye? In other words, where are you from? As if he didn't know, but he wants to get it out of them. He wants to purposely keep them in the dark about his identity until he can determine if these guys have changed over 22 years. Are they now repentant about what they had done to him? So as he's trying to overcome the shock of seeing his brothers in the food line, not Harris Teeter, and then bowed before him, a truth comes to light for him. It dawns on him, you know, the light bulb. (laughs) 
And he realized that this is, this is the reason he's in such a position of power in Egypt. God's purpose all along was to put him in a place where he could protect and provide for his family. It don't, you know, he, see, he realizes it. He says, I knew, Lord, you had a reason for all these years of toil and affliction. It's to get me to this place so I could protect my own family. And that purpose was certainly a whole lot higher than just getting revenge. He knew the restoration of the unity of God's covenant family depended on his brother's repentance. They needed, they needed to come face to face with the injustice of what they had done to him and what they had done to his fa- their father, but most of all, what they had done to God because their sin was really against holy God. God had revealed his will through the dreams he gave to Joseph. He shared those dreams with them, and they tried to thwart that, didn't they? They didn't want Joseph in authority over them, so they tried to stop God's plan. So it was important that they acknowledge their sin and repent. So the family nation would, would be united. Otherwise, you know, Joseph would have, his family, his descendants would have been in Egypt. They would have been in Canaan. They would have perished, for one thing, because there were five more years of the famine. But they wouldn't have been united. So it's important that they be united and reconciled. So he devised a plan to test his brothers, and that plan centered on Benjamin. He, he goes ahead, and when his brothers tell him that they came from Canaan to buy food, verse 7, he accuses them of being spies. He says, you guys are here, you're spies. You're here to check out the, the, you know, where we store the granary so you can steal from us. He accuses them of, of being spies. Now, remember, he's not doing this for revenge. That's not his motive. His motive is for restoration and repentance. And the severity of his accusation, of course, as spies, that produces great fear in them. And when you're, in, when you're fearful, you tend to talk more. And that's why they interrogate people under sometimes, you know, persecution and stuff. Because you just give out more information than otherwise you would. And that's exactly what happened. As the brothers are trying to talk their way out of this uh, spy charge, they give information to Joseph, the vizier, that later on Jacob reprimands them. He said, you guys talk too much. Why didn't you tell them this? Why did you tell them you had a younger brother? But that's exactly what they do. They say in verse 11... We are all the sons of one man. In other words, we're brothers. And then verse 13, they say, and originally we came from a family of 12. And maybe at this point, we know later on, Joseph asked them two questions. Maybe it was at this point, he he asked the question, number one, is your father yet alive? He really wanted to know 22 years later if his dad was still alive. So he says, is your father yet alive? And then he says, have ye another brother? Now, those are kind of weird questions (laughs) coming from this important Egyptian big mucky muck, you know. Why why would he care about their father if he was alive and another, if they had another? If they had stopped to think about that, they'd say, that's weird. But they didn't. They were too nervous to think about that. Well, obviously, he had to be very delighted to learn that, yes, his father was alive and healthy. And that Benjamin was still with him. They hadn't killed off Benjamin, and they hadn't sold him as a slave to Egypt. 
So anyway, his brothers are still nervously talking. And then they tell him about another, you know, another brother. He said originally, they said we are originally 12 brothers, but one brother is not. That's in verse 13. Is not. That means he's gone. He's missing or dead. Now, of course, they were speaking about him and he knew it, didn't he? He knew they were talking about him. They didn't know they were talking about him. But there's one piece of information they left out. They did not talk about their part in the fact that he is not. (laughs) They left that out. Well, he responds to his brother's extra information by saying he's going to settle the matter as to whether they're spies and liars or not by detaining them in prison. And he's going to throw them in prison and yet allow one of them to go back to Canaan in order to bring back the proof of their honesty. And that proof would be their younger brother, Benjamin. And to help that he's really throwing him in prison because he wants them to have time to meditate and to think. You know, these boys are always busy and they probably never talk about what they did to Joseph, you know, and everything is going fine, so they just don't dwell on it. But now they're in a serious position. They've been accused of being spies. They could be beheaded. They might spend the rest of their lives in prison. They don't know. And so they're down there three days thinking. They have time to think about everything that they probably hadn't talked about for years, their betrayal of him and their deception of their own father. So he confines, he keeps changing his mind. You know, this is all happening so fast that he says, um, I'm going to let one go back to Canaan. But then he decides to put all 10 of them in prison. So he detains all 10 of his older brothers in prison for three days. They're down there thinking, weeping, crying. What, what is going, you know, we're reaping what we've sown. They're not really talking to each other, I don't think, at this point. But they're all thinking about it. And at the conclusion of the three days, he releases them from prison, and he has a new idea, and it's less harsh than the first plan. First of all, he was going to keep nine of them and only let one go. Now he decides that he's going to let nine go back home and keep just one. I think he changed his mind because he got to thinking, well, if I keep them here, my dad and my younger brother and all their families and wives and children are going to be hungry. They need the grain. So I'll just keep one of them. I'll detain one of them. And so he shares that new plan with them. But before he does that, he says something that must have shocked them. It's in verse 18, chapter 42, verse 18. Joseph said unto them the third day, this do and live for I fear God. Now that's strange coming from an Egyptian vizier, isn't it? Why wouldn't he say, I fear the gods and goddesses, or I fear the god on, or the Ra, the sun god. You know, he said, I fear God. That was a wise thing for him to do. Because he is trying, these boys have not yet talked about God. I call them boys because you can tell my age, even they're in the 40s, they're boys. My son is in early 40s, so he's a boy. (laughs) But they haven't talked about God, and he's trying to get them to start thinking about God. Anyway, he tells them about the new plan, and he tells them, you can go, nine of you can go back. Take the grain back to your family. But if you ever want to see the one imprisoned brother again and prove that you're not spies, you're going to have to return with your younger brother. To release the one, you're going to have to bring the other. And they agreed to his terms. 
And then, verse 21 is so interesting. I have it circled. They finally begin to talk to one another. And who is still in the room? Joseph, I think he sent the interpreter out. And he's in there with them. But they're not worried about him listening because he can't speak and understand Hebrew. He's been using an interpreter. He's an Egyptian. So they start talking to each other and he understands every word because Hebrew is his mother tongue. And he is listening intently. And guess what they say? They say to one another, verse 21, we are verily guilty. That word they used actually speaks of not only are we guilty, we deserve punishment. We are verily guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the anguish of his soul when he besought us and we would not hear. He was crying out for their mercy and they stopped up their ears to him, didn't they? And they say, therefore is this distress come upon us. There's a picture of Israel in time of tribulation right here. We're in distress. Now we're in his shoes because here this stubborn man won't believe us that we're not spies. He's stopping out. He doesn't believe us. So they're realizing this is divine payback, isn't it, for what they had done. And then Reuben, if you look at verse 22, Reuben adds his I told you so (laughs) to their conversation. He tells his brothers he had not wanted them to sin against Joseph. And he says now his blood is required on them because they all think he's dead. And they all see the hand of God at work. In verse 24, we see the display of Joseph's heart in all of this. Having just heard the spiritual soul searching that is going on within his brothers, his emotions get the better of him. And he literally has to leave the room so that his tears won't give away his feelings and his identity. Imagine if he broke out weeping, they said, what in the world is wrong with him? But Jesus wept and Joseph wept. He he weeps again quite a bit. There's nothing wrong with a man weeping. Well, when he regained control, he returned, and guess guess which brother he took to throw in prison? (laughs) Simeon. Now, think about it. Reuben, he had just heard, and he knew, I think he knew, that Reuben wasn't a part of when they sold him. He was going to come back and get him out of the pit and everything. He wasn't there when they did sell him as a slave. And now he hears Reuben say, I didn't want you to do that. So Reuben is off the hook. He doesn't grab him. He grabs the next oldest son. And actually, Simeon was the worst of the crowd. He was the one most responsible for the massacre of the Shechemites. So he throws Simeon, and it says that he bound him before their eyes. Now, that last vision of Simeon being led away, bound to an unknown fate, that also must have caused them to remember a similar scene when they had bound Joseph and he was led away, all of which was their own doing. So it was time for the brothers, minus Simeon, to return home with the life-sustaining grain for their families. Joseph cared about the families and feeding them. And so he gives three orders to his servants. Number one, fill the men's sacks, their saddlebags, with corn. Fill them with corn. Give plenty of provisions for them on the way back. You know, pack lunches for them. (laughs) And then return their money 
the money that they paid for the grain, hide it in their bags. Well, on the journey home, they stop at an inn. One of the brothers reaches into his saddlebag to feed his donkey some grain, and there at the mouth is a bundle of money. And he goes, oh, no. And he tells his brothers about it, and it says, their heart failed them. Heart, singular. They're all in agreement about this. They're in trouble. And here they finally talk about God. They say, verse 28, what is this that God hath done unto us. They're getting it, aren't they? (laughs) Now, the good news is that they're beginning to come clean. For years, 22, they had hidden and stifled their guilty consciences, but they're finally being awakened to see what they did in the past was directly connected to what was happening to them in the present. And chapters 42 and 43 are all about a series of tests that God used through Joseph to awaken the consciences of these men. Well, on their arrival home, the nine brothers give their father, Jacob, a report about everything that happened when they were in Egypt. And they said they called Joseph the man who is the Lord of the land. And they told Jacob how he had accused them of being spies, but they don't mention anything about their imprisonment. And what I think is interesting is that when they arrive and there's only nine of them and they're carrying an empty donkey, (laughs) Jacob doesn't tear, rent his clothes and cry, where's Simeon? He doesn't even ask about him. (laughs) That guy really is partial. Anyway, they, and they almost make it sound like, they tell him, you know, Simeon is with the Lord of the country. They don't mention that he's in prison. They almost make it sound like he's a guest of the, of the Lord, the vizier. But they do tell him that uh, Simeon could only be brought back home and they could only buy more grain if they needed it if they went back with Benjamin. Well, his son's story sounds believable, so he doesn't ask them any more questions about it until they go to unpack their saddlebags. And then they all discover bundles of money hidden within their sacks. In verse 35, every bit of money that they had paid for the grain was still with them. And now they do appear guilty of not not spies, but guilty of stealing. And they're afraid, again, it says in verse 35, if the Lord, if the Egyptian Lord learned about the money, if somebody said, hey, the money's missing that they paid, things would be very, very bad for Simeon. And also, if they ever returned for more food with Benjamin. things, And, and so when Jacob finds out all this money is still in their sacks, he is very angry at them. But it's self-centered anger. Because what he says in verse 36, remember we showed before how he always says, me, me, me? Well, look what his first word is, me, me. Verse 36, me have ye bereaved of my children. Joseph is not, Simeon is not, and ye will take Benjamin away. All these things are against me. He's really self-centered. Well, Reuben, (laughs) poor Reuben, 
he has an impetuous response to his father's self-pity, his attitude, his poor me attitude, and he tries to assure his father that everything's going to be okay because he, the oldest son, would personally ensure that Benjamin would return. If he let Benjamin go, he would be in charge of making sure Benjamin came back to daddy. And then he seals his his, his words with a promise. He takes an oath. And here's what he says. It's so stupid. He says, slay my two sons if I bring not the, him, Benjamin, to thee. That's in verse 37. In other words, if I don't keep my word, you can kill my two sons. What? Uh-huh. Yep. <laughs> I think that's really dumb. Do you think Jacob was going to kill two of his own sons? No, no way. And he doesn't even answer that because it's so dumb. All right, but by the fact that Jacob wouldn't send Benjamin to release Simeon, again, it shows his preference. He's really, he's, he's so adamant about not losing Benjamin, he's willing to sacrifice Simeon. Well, he makes a comment that Benjamin, oh, that comment about Benjamin and his attitude. If, if they hated Benjamin, it would come out right now, wouldn't it? But we, we find no indication that they hate and envy him, him, him like they had with Joseph. He even says again, if some mischief should befall him in verse 38. So it shows that he really did suspect something. But this family was led all along by a very poor father. You know what? If I was Jacob, what I would have done? What would Abraham have done? Yes. The father. Okay. I would have taken all the boys including Benjamin, and led the family to Egypt and gone before this vizier and said, I'm here to get my son in prison. They weren't lying. Here I am. Here's my youngest son. Release my son, Simeon. And what would have happened? (laughs) The vizier would suddenly have been weeping on his neck. Now, don't say Jacob was too old to make that trip because he makes it later on. So that's what he should have done. But what he does instead is he puts off the entire situation. He doesn't do a thing. He procrastinates. And unfortunately, he didn't know this, but unfortunately there were five more years of famine coming, and he was going to run out of grain again, and they did. Uh, When they ate up all the corn in Egypt, he goes to his sons and he says, time to go back to Egypt and buy a little food. He doesn't say anything about Simeon. He doesn't say, you know, it probably took him about a year maybe. Maybe this is now the third year. I don't know. At least half a year to eat through what they had. He doesn't say anything about Simeon. He doesn't say anything about Benjamin. He says, just go back there. Well, Reuben had tried to get his father's attention, and he failed. Simeon, the next eldest, is back in Egypt in prison. Levi, the third oldest, doesn't say anything. He's quiet. We don't know what's going on in his mind, but he doesn't speak up. Who's the next son? Judah. Judah. Judah, Judah, whose name means praise. He's the next in the birth lineup. He's the one who had married a Canaanite woman, had three sons, two of whom were so evil, the Lord slew them. Then he had fornication with his own daughter-in-law, who was dressed up as a temple prostitute, and he was the most responsible for having sold, it was his idea, to sell Joseph to the passing Ishmaelites for 20, 30 pieces of silver. Nonetheless, God is merciful, isn't he? It was his, God's appointed time for Judah 
to step to the plate and show forth the lion. The, his image is a lion, a lion from the tribe of Judah. It was time for him to show forth the lion that was growing within him. So on behalf of his brothers, Judah boldly reminds his father of what the man, the Egyptian Lord, had said to them about not seeing them again or giving them any more food unless their younger brother was with them. And then he proved to be as stubborn as his old man (laughs) when he says, if thou will not send him, we will not go down to Egypt. Verse 5 of chapter 43. Jacob responds by accusing all of his sons of dealing ill with him. He said, if you hadn't told this man that you had a younger brother, it's all your fault that I'm in this position. Wah, 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 you know, just has his pity party. And it was wrong. And, and, you know, he said, why did you tell him? And they said, well, he asked us, do we have a younger brother? Did you want us to lie to him? You know, it's wrong for him to rebuke them for telling the truth. Anyway, Judah continues to speak, and he spells out the eventual outcome of his father's continued procrastination. He says in verse 8, if you won't let Benjamin go down with us, guess what? Here's the only alternative. We're all going to die. Your whole family is going to die, including all the children. And then he adds a rebuke of his own in verse 10. He says to his father, in effect, you know what, Dad? If you had not procrastinated so long, we could have been to Egypt back and forth twice by now. He does. That's what he says. (laughs) He was forcefully getting his dad to stop thinking about himself and act responsibly as the head of the family. And then, then he does something fantastic. Verse 9, 43, 9. He offers himself in place of Benjamin. He's willing to assume the debt for Benjamin's life. You know, this is the first human, human example of a substitute that we have in the scripture. Not Isaac. I know some of you are going back to Isaac. Isaac was not a substitute for anyone, was he? Not even really himself. He couldn't have been a sin substitute even for himself. The ram was the substitute for Isaac. The very first human substitute in the scripture is right here, Judah. He is offering himself as surety for Benjamin. If Benjamin, if they wouldn't get Benjamin, he would would be in prison. He would be the vizier's slave for the rest of his life so that he would let Benjamin go. And this, (laughs) this is why Jesus comes from the tribe of Judah. Amen. And we're going to see next time Judah really starts to roar as a lion. And, you know, hearing that from his fourth son named Praise, it was sufficient for the father. It was sufficient for the father. And he said, you can take Benjamin with you. I want to close with a poem I wrote about Joseph, and when you listen to it, of course, think about Jesus. The favorite son of his father was he, envied by brothers to a murderous degree. Jacob commissioned him one fateful day to seek out his brothers who had wandered astray. So Joseph left father to wilderness roam 
to find his strayed brethren and call them back home. But at his appearing, they wanted him not. Their jealous emotions and hatred flared hot. They stripped off his robe, their intention to kill, then sat down to eat their own stomachs to fill. Betrayed for some silver, while for mercy he pled, turned over to Gentiles, Jacob thought Joseph dead. In Egypt he mastered each servanthood task, his integrity real, no hypocrisy mask. He fled from temptation, though to prison he went, still trusting in God, long years there he spent. When finally remembered, he was suddenly free. A commandment went forth to him, bow the knee. From Joseph alone, men came to get bread, including his brethren, who long thought him dead. Amen. He is a type of Jesus, isn't he? No, don't clap for me. Don't clap. <laughs> Father, thank you for our time together. Bless our fellowship to follow with those groups um, that are going to have lunch. Thank you for the patience of your women, and forgive me once again for going over time, ladies. Please forgive me. Thank you for the wonderful giving for the prison ministry. We just pray, Lord, that much fruit will be born from this, that many men will come to know you, and truly, even though in prison, they will truly, truly be set free in Jesus Christ our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen.